0: Whew. He is a deceiver, a manipulator. In fact, he even does it with God. Let me read to you something that Jacob said to God. He said, God, if you'll be with me and give me food and protection, and if you'll help me finally get back to my home and to my land and my people safely, then I'll make you the Lord my God. He's even doing that with God. You do this for me, God, then I'll make you the Lord my God. Whew. Today. today, today, today,
1: today, with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello, my name is Bill and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines. And today we have a powerful sermon in store for you, Jacob and Jesus. Pastor Jeff is in the book of Genesis, chapter 32, verse 22. And he's exploring the story of Jacob wrestling with God.
0: Suddenly Jacob realises this God that he's wrestling could have incinerated him in any moment. And suddenly the light comes on. What's going on?
1: In this thought-provoking message, we'll delve into the heart of this encounter. We'll discover that God, in His unending love, reaches out to us in our weakness. Let's hear from Pastor Jeff as he begins this message.
0: I'm in Genesis chapter 32, Genesis 32, 22. Now, here's what I want to do. When I say these names, I want you to think of what comes to mind, okay? And you, you can even shout it out if you want, I don't care. When, when I say the name Abraham, I think of the father of our faith. I think of the, of the scene where he takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah and God will provide the lamb, that whole scene. Every time I think of Abraham. How about Moses? What do you think of? Him? Yeah, me too. Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments, the promised land. How about Samson? We talked about him last. What about Samson? Strength. I think of him stretching out his hands, you know, and breaking those columns. And then in his death, he defeated the enemy. And Christ, in his death, when he stretched out his arms on the cross, defeated his enemy. How about Joseph? Yeah, coat of many colors. I always think, I always think Joseph is the ultimate archetype of Jesus because he saves his people. Now, here's the one for this weekend, though. Jacob, he gets a little pressed, the poor guy. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Here, when I think of Jacob, here's what I think about the only man who ever wrestled God, one-on-one. I mean, in fact, Jacob's name, do you know it means to wrestle or to strive? Jacob's entire life, if you read his story, is about entitlement. From the very get-go, and i mentioned this before, my Sunday school teacher on these flannel graphs, you remember the flannel graphs? And you remember the little illustration of where Jacob and Esau and Esau... Jacob's coming out second of the womb and he's got a hold of Esau's hill. So from the get-go, it's almost like Jacob knows. Uh, he, he, it's almost like even in the womb, he knows about primogeniture. Primogeniture is that thing we talk about in the Old Testament where the firstborn gets it all. If you're the firstborn, you get the land, you get the money, you get the resources, you get the name. All the other children are just farmhands, okay? So it's almost like Jacob, even in the womb, knew that. So he's pulling Esau to try. You get back in here, you little punk. This belongs to me and then of course if you know anything about him later on in his life jacob likes to cook he's around his mom a lot and esau likes to be out in the field with his father esau's been hunting for i guess a few days he comes back in he's starving and jacob just happened to make a nice little bowl of soup and esau says give me some of that soup i'm gonna die and jacob says tell me your birthright your birthright for a bowl of soup esau says of course what does he say well, it doesn't matter if I'm if my birthright's no good if I'm dead, so sure, give me the soup. Now, he doesn't think it actually works that way, but it's gonna it's gonna cause serious ramifications in Esau's life as well. And then, you know, the whole story of where Jacob's mother convinces him to go in and try to steal the birthright from Isaac. So she puts wool on his arms to make him feel like he's hairy, like his brother Esau, and sprays him down with some, I don't know, wildwood stuff to make him smell like he's been out in the wilderness. And suddenly uh isaac because he can't see very well is deceived and he steals the birthright but now esau wants to kill him so he has to go and flee the land because esau's chasing him and he has to leave his mother rachel that is jacob again the only person who's really ever loved him but jacob throughout his entire life will continue this because he gets to uncle laban and he's trying to manipulate uncle laban but uncle laban is a deceiver manipulator as well so they're battling each other all the time for who for which daughter jacob is actually going to get in marriage Whew. He is a deceiver, a manipulator. In fact, he even does it with God. Let me read to you something that Jacob said to God. He said, God, if you'll be with me and give me food and protection, and if you'll help me finally get back to my home and to my land and my people safely, then I'll make you the Lord my God. He's even doing that with God. You do this for me, God, then I'll make you the Lord my God. In other words, Jacob's love and service to God is contingent on God doing or behaving the way Jacob thinks God should behave. But now we come to Genesis 32. I don't know if I've ever preached on this passage. Genesis 32, it's judgment day. Esau is coming with his entourage to take care of Jacob once and for all. And he's wealthy, but so is Jacob. What does Jacob do? He hears Esau's coming for him. So Jacob's, he's still manipulating because he says, okay, I've got to soften the blow a little bit. I'm going to send my brother Esau gifts. And he starts sending him gifts about every 30 minutes. Okay. He has his servants and we're not talking about just a few gifts. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of donkeys and horses and whatever he has, goods to try to soften the blow. While he does that, he sends everyone in his family, away. He says, I want you to go away. I want to be alone. And then Jacob starts to pray. Now, here's what happens when Jacob starts to pray. I'm in Genesis 32, 22. That night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. After he sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and the man, a man rather, wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with man or humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God's face or I saw God face to face. And yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. Now there's a lot here. It is probably one of the most sobering passages you're going to read in the old Testament because it tells you things about God. Okay. And here's the first thing it tells you, you know, if I tell you to write something down, it's because they're important. I don't tell you to do that very often, but these are probably four things you should write down and keep in your phone or your iPad or in a note somewhere to go back to, especially when you encounter difficult seasons of life. Okay. Number one, here's the first thing. The most important events of your life, you're going to have to face alone. The most important, crucial events of your life, you're going to have to face alone. You know, recently I had nasal passage surgery. Boy, I'm so glad. Remember those four months where I just, it was horrible. And they took me down to the hospital. and All my friends were texting me, Pastor Jeff, we're praying for you today. Some people sent me some gifts. You know, nobody sent me golf clubs, but some people sent me gifts. Pastor Jeff, we're thinking about you. Uh, you know, wish you could be there. And then my wife, Robin, goes with me. And you know, they take you down. They put that gown on you. It's freezing cold and you got to wait. But you know what? Even though everybody sends you good wishes... When it's time to go through those double doors, you're on your own. Robin can't come with me. Your friends can't come with you. It's just you and the doctor, and he's all masked up. That's it. Let me tell you something. If your relationship with God never becomes deeply personal, you're always going to feel alone for your entire life. Jacob wrestles God all of his life, For the sake of getting things from God. You've heard me say this a thousand times. So Jacob is in a relationship with God to get things from God. He never pursues God for the sake of getting God. As a result, Jacob goes through his whole life. He's lonely. He's always restless. He is anxious, depressed. And all of it's a result of the fact that he's never gone in one-on-one with God and pursued God for the sake of getting God. Most of the emotions we experience that are negative come as a result and we feel alone. You can have a thousand people around you and be alone. You can be in a marriage and be alone. Until you have a deeply committed personal relationship with Jesus, you're going to feel alone most of your life. And when you go into those seasons when you need somebody, you're going to feel like you're all by yourself. Jacob knows that. He understands that he's feeling that right now. He sends everybody away. He's alone anyway in his spirit, and he's about to do some business with God. Now, here's the second thing. We're moving fast. God will pursue you, but will never overpower you. Guys, you got you to hear me on this. I, if, if we could ever grapple with something that could change everything other than the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is the thing we have to grapple with. If there's something we could ever grapple with that has the potential to change so much in us, it's this. And I have, over the course of my ministry, I've tried to communicate this in so many different ways. Please focus here. In Genesis 32, verse 24, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, there's a lot of questions here. For instance, who is Jacob actually wrestling? Now, later on in the passage, he calls the place Peniel because he says, I've seen the face of God. Jacob is wrestling the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus was able to appear in many places in the Old Testament long before he took on flesh. And Jesus will visit numerous Old Testament characters. This is not a theophany where God takes on the form of a man. No, this is the pre-incarnate Christ wrestling with Jacob. And what does Jacob mean? Or what does the man mean who, is, who we now know is God himself? When it says that god cannot overpower him how can god not overpower somebody and what does that mean given the fact that later on in the wrestling match he's just gonna touch jacob's hip socket and wound him jacob is gonna limp after this for the rest of his life so what do you mean you can't overpower him let me say it again so important god will pursue you but never overpower you why In the famous writings of Dostoevsky, the great novel entitled The Brothers Karamazov, in that novel, the agnostic brother Ivan writes a poem called The Great Inquisitor. It's quite famous. And in the poem, he has this cardinal that's almost 90 years old. And in the story, Jesus returns to the earth to walk among men. This cardinal recognizes him and has Jesus arrested and thrown into prison the cardinal. Here is his explanation of why he does that. Let me read it to you. He says to Jesus, by turning down the three temptations, you forfeited the three greatest powers at your disposal, miracle, mystery, and authority. You should have followed Satan's advice and performed these miracles on demand in order to increase your fame among the people. Don't you realize that more than anything, people want to worship what's established beyond dispute. Instead of taking possession of man's freedom, you increased it. You desired man's free love, that he should follow you freely, enticed and taken captive by you. By resisting Satan's temptations to override human freedom, you made yourself far too easy to reject. Fortunately, the church recognized the error and corrected it, relying on miracle, mystery, and authority ever since. Do you get what's happening here? The cardinal says to Jesus, You should have dazzled men beyond doubt. You should have given them everything they asked for so there would be no doubt who you are. You didn't. You should have given them everything they wanted. Free bread, free food. You should have healed every disease, not just some, so that there'd be no doubt who you are. And you should have commanded men into submission. You should have shown them your power and authority and said, you do this now. You should have taken possession, he says, of man's freedom. Now, how many times have you heard some of your friends say, man, if God would just do this, this, and this, I'd follow him. How many times? If God is the real God, he would do this, this, and this. And it always has to do with dazzling and power and giving you everything that you want. And your life working out the way you think it should work out. What is interesting is, if if God was after your obedience only, he could do it. If he was after that, it would be easy to get Power, authority, and miracle has never been successful in winning men's hearts, ever. Communism took that approach for decades. They promised to turn stones into bread, to guarantee safety and security for all their people in exchange for one thing, their freedom. We'll tell you where to live, where to go, what to work. I remember reading something about Pravda. Pravda is the official, was the official mouthpiece of the Communist Party for years. And there was an article written about the trouble they had getting people to help with the children of chernobyl after the nuclear disaster and in pravda one of the authors wrote these words we don't know how to get people to show compassion we tried to raise money for the children of chernobyl but the average russian citizen would rather spend their money on drink how do you reform and motivate people how do you get them to be good Seventy-four years of communism proved that beyond all doubt, goodness cannot be legislated from the top down. No matter how many threats are made, it must grow internally from the bottom up. You following me still? This is the difference between Satan's power and God's power. Satan's power wants to coerce and dazzle and force obedience to ultimately destroy you, the lust of the eyes and the flesh. God's power, by contrast, is internal and non-coercive. In the gospel story, God makes himself weak and vulnerable for one purpose, that human beings can choose freely for themselves what to do with him. Think about it just for a moment. What does constant provision yield to humanity? Entitlement. If I give you everything you ever asked for, what happens after a while? You expect it, right? Right? But what happens if I, if I give you my constant presence when you go through the most difficult seasons of life? What happens? Over time, you develop a love and appreciation for somebody who walks with you. See, evidently, God's nature is, is so overpoweringly self-giving that he bases his appeal to you and me on sacrificial love, not on dazzling Because only sacrificial love can compel the response God is looking for, a relationship between the creator and the creature. Do you understand that? When you hear your friends talk about, well, if God would do this, 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 and this, no. If God would do this, this, and this, you'd want him to do this, this, and this as well. But God bases his appeal on sacrificial love. No pyrotechnic display of omnipotence will ever achieve the purpose God really desires. He could do it and he could get your obedience, but that's not what he's after. He's after your love. He's after a relationship. He wants you to be enamored with him and to chase him, to pursue him as he pursues you. You desired man's free love that he should follow you freely enticed and taken captive by you. God wants you to be captivated by him, not dazzled by him. You with me so far? The most difficult seasons of your life, you're going to have to face alone. But God will come after you, but he will never overpower you. You've heard me say that God gives you just enough information to pursue him, but not too much as to override your freedom to choose or reject him. Now, let's keep going, though. Here's the third thing. God cannot be tamed. You cannot tame God. Jacob is finally getting it. He sends the gifts to Esau. He sends everyone away to be alone, and then he prays. Now, we haven't read this part of the text, but one question is, why does Jacob keep going home when he knows Esau's coming to kill him? Why not just stay in your land? Jacob has amassed incredible wealth. Why not just stay where you are? Why do you keep coming home? Esau's heard you coming home. He's coming out to meet you and kill you. Just stop going home. And the answer is because in Genesis 31 verse 2, God told him to go home. So he's listening and obeying God, even at the risk of his own life. He obviously saw an episode of Dr. Phil where the good doctor said, and how's that working out for you? And Jacob says, "My way of life's not working out. Maybe I'm going to try God. God told me to go home. I'm going to go home." So he sends everyone away, so that he can think and reflect and pray. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Here we go. I love that. I love the end of this sermon. The last two parts. I, I tell you, it's sobering. Here's the million-dollar question. How do you expect God to respond to a man who obeys at the risk of his own life, follows God's will, seeks Him in prayer, and is at the end of his rope? How do you expect God to respond? He assaults him. He puts the hammerlock on him and lames him for the rest of his life. This is not the God of liberal religion. Oh, beneficent God who loves everyone, the perfect God of love who never harms anyone, but neither is it the conservative God, the God that says, if you do everything right and pray and read your Bible and go to church, everything will always turn out just the way you expect. You cannot tame God. You can't bind God to some contract that you come up with. You can't control him by some formula. You can't force your own personal covenant on him. You can't bind him to your rules. The real God reserves the right to clobber you and cripple you for the rest of your life if it means he can save you. Amen. We don't like to hear that, do we? Woo! I don't like this. I don't like. Th- yeah. Who would make up a God like this? That's why C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. Remember Lucy asked, referring to Aslam, the Christ figure, is he safe? What's the answer? Safe? Who said anything about it? safe? He's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. On the other hand, as you go into John chapter 11, Jesus is approaching the tomb of Lazarus. He's going to use Lazarus' pain and suffering For eternal purposes, yes. However, when he sees the pain of his friends, Mary and Martha, in verse 38 of John 11, Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. Remember what we've said before. Theologians are in a quandary over this because deeply moved means to snort or to bellow with anger and it's usually used in association with animals. So why is Jesus so mad? The answer is he's mad at what sin has caused. He's mad at injustice and so should we. And he's also sad at the thousands of funerals that he's not going to interrupt. But just because God uses our suffering and clobbers us does not mean in any way that he's detached from it. As with Job, he comes as the prevailing presence, as as, cre- as creator, comforter, and revealer, and is with us in our most serious time of need. But here's the reality: you still can't tame God because you, you don't know what God's doing. You want to, you can ask. But you don't know the mind of God in any situation unless he chooses to reveal it to you. And sometimes he does, and it usually comes through scripture and prayer and serious meditation, those disciplines in your life. That's why a person who never falls apart usually owns a Bible that is falling apart, right? So you're going to face the most intense times of your life alone, and you're going to find out if you have a relationship with God or not at that point. If you do, you'll weather the storm. If you don't, you'll crumble in anxiety and fear and doubt. And you'll go from place to place trying to get out of this situation rather than allowing God to do what he needs to do inside it. And along the way, if you try to tame God, yeah, he'll show up. He'll wrestle with you, but he will never overpower you. It's still going to be your decision. And you won't be able to tame him by some contract you come up with. But here, here is the fourth and final, the climactic point of this message. God has to wrestle us into a transformed life rather than comfort us into a transformed life.
1: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from
0: Pastor Jeff. And suddenly Jacob realizes This God that he's wrestling could have incinerated him in any moment. And suddenly the light comes on. And if you notice, at first Jacob is wrestling the man to free himself, but now he's wrestling the man to keep hold of him. What happened? Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. What? Jacob now is holding on, but not, not to try to get free. Now he's wrestling to keep the man who could incinerate him at any moment from leaving. What's going on?
1: You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts.